Well, good evening, everyone. Very good to see you this Lord's Day evening. It is good to praise the Lord, says the psalmist. It's good to make music to your name, O Most High. Proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. To the music of the ten and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. And so the psalmist with his fingers celebrates the works of the Lord with his fingers. So let's join together in praising our Lord and singing Psalm uh, 134, Praise the Lord by Ian White. And after that, uh, remain standing and we'll sing the song from the sun's rising into the sun's setting.
please be seated and let's join together in prayer. What an amazing thought that you have claimed the nations for the inheritance of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. And surely he is worthy. And surely he deserves the acclaim and cheers of his people who have been rescued by him and brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. Help us, Lord, to raise our spirits and to raise our hearts up to where Christ is, no matter how low we may be in our spirits or in our hearts. Help us to lift them up to him and find in him all that we need for worship and service. We thank you that when we are weak, he, by his grace, provides our strength. That when we are sad and sorrowful, by his grace, he helps us endure and in his mercy rescues us that we may walk with him in peace. We thank you that when we have fallen down in failure and are ashamed and cannot even lift up our heads or eyes to look at him for the shame of what we have done or the greater shame for what we haven't done. He is the one who lifts up our head, who stoops down into the mud, who covers himself with our blood that he might heal us and bring us to himself, who sheds his blood and dies in our place, who takes our stripes and our punishment and our shame for love for us, for greater love for the Father. Yes, we draw near to you through him, and we know and believe that all that we need uh, this day is found in him. When we can't say sorry properly, he is the one who enables us to repent. When we find it hard to believe the good news, he is the one who draws us and brings us to believe and gives us the gift of faith. He commands what he gives. He gives what he commands. And he is commanding us to repent and believe the good news. And so we do. And we want to encourage one another this evening. So help us to praise from our heart and with all our being. Help us to not lose focus or attention um, but to be aware of what you are doing bit by bit in the different parts of this time when you come to serve us. Help us in being aware of you, to love you, and so by your grace be changed. All these prayers in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. We're reading through Numbers uh, in our evening service, and we've come to chapter 18, I think it is, and Kirsten, where do you say she is? Kirsten will read for us. Kirsten. The readings from Numbers, chapter 18, beginning at verse 20. And if you've got one of the church Bibles, you'll find that reading on page 156. 
The Lord said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. From now on, the Israelites must not go near the tent of meeting, or they will bear the consequences of their sin and will die. It is the Levites who are to do the work at the tent of meeting and bear the responsibility for offences against it. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. They will receive no inheritance among the Israelites. Instead, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. That is why I said concerning them, they will have no inheritance among the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Levites and say to them, When you receive from the Israelites the tithe I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tenth of that tithe as the Lord's offering. Your offering will be reckoned to you as grain from the threshing floor or juice from the winepress. In this way, you also will present an offering to the Lord from all the tithes you receive from the Israelites. From these tithes, you must give the Lord's portion to Aaron the priest. You must present as the Lord's portion the best and holiest part of everything given to you. Say to the Levites, when you present the best part, it will be reckoned to you as the product of the threshing floor or the winepress. You and your households may eat the rest of it anywhere, for it is your wages for your work at the tent of meeting. By presenting the best part of it, you will not be guilty in this matter. Then you will not defile the holy offerings of the Israelites, and you will not die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Thanks to God. Be to God. Right, we're going to take some notices now. Welcome. Uh, good to see some old students and new students back. Former students, no, uh, young students. Yeah. Moira says, don't try and ad-lib the announcements. And uh, I've just gone and done that. So, right. Three things I want to draw to your attention. Um, the Women's Fellowship meeting tomorrow night. Uh, this is part one of hospitality. It's a great subject, a great topic. Um, just a shame there's not one for the men as well, because uh, elders are supposed to be hospitable as well as... Uh, as well as families, but that's great. So put that in your in your diary for tomorrow night. Thank you. Student lunch next Sunday after communion service. Um, you don't need to bring soup or sandwiches, but you can bring a cake, and we'll really enjoy it. Sign up. If you are hosting students and tend to provide hospitality from throughout the year, um, we're inviting you to come along to this meeting so that um, you get a chance to see some of the students, maybe put a face to the name, and they get a chance to see some of you. So feel free to come along to that. Third thing concerning next Sunday, the, the morning service will be communion. Before that, we will be meeting as elders um, to discuss anybody is considering becoming a member of the church. And if you are in that position, please speak to me after the service or speak to me during, uh, during the week. I'd like to speak to you first before um, we come to the elders, just so I can introduce you properly. So uh, please do that. Oh, yes, and the prayer meeting on Saturday mornings is resuming now as well. So that's the third thing. So these are all the announcements. Okay, let's 
um, gather together with some of our prayers um, for others. Let's pray together. We think of the amazing thing in Heavenly Father in the in the times of the apostles that Paul, who had so many gifts and was so powerful in his preaching, so mightily used, was the one of the humblest apostles who constantly asked for prayer and, and depended upon the prayer of his fellow believers, begging them and pleading with them and, in, and just entreating them to, to pray for him, for his message, for his power, for his service, for his ability to glorify Jesus. And we thank you that through prayer we can enter into the struggles and work of others. We thank you that when the books are opened and the secrets will be shared, that there will be many mighty women and men who um, nobody has noticed in in the history of the church, and nobody's written about them, but God has noticed because they were the strength behind the spear, the word, the sword, the preaching, the message, the ministry. We thank you for the strength and stability that so many of us have who are in the public eye because of those who lie behind us in the secret place. We thank you for them and we seek to emulate them and to copy them. We pray for one another. We pray for all those who have the responsibility to rightly divide your word and preach the gospel and teach your people. Please, please, will you keep them from error? Will you keep them from um, hobby horses? Will you keep them um, sane? And will you keep them preaching not just one part, but the whole counsel of God, all that is helpful and useful for building up your people to serve you? We pray for those in leadership. We we know that there will be a greater judgment for those who preach and speak, but there will be a judgment too for those who are to be examples. And um, as the old saying says, when the big trees fall, many smaller ones are crushed. And we pray that you will keep your elders safe from any immorality, any sinfulness, that you will keep them close to yourself, that they will be examples of faith and and sober-mindedness and goodness and hospitality, that they will have a good reputation. Um, we pray that you will, will, you will fill them with love for the people they are responsible for and that you will guide them uh, in all their decision-making. We remember the Vacancy Committee. We remember Paul Clark. We remember Stephen um, as he chairs that team and committee. And we want... We want somebody to come, your man, to come at the right time. And we want there to be a sense in his heart that this is, yes, a divine appointment and not just um, a place of service or um, some sort of career move or whatever. This sense of calling from you. And we want that same sense in the hearts of your people who are praying for this, that we will know also that this truly is of God. And therefore submit to your servant who seeks to serve us in the name of Christ. 
We do remember the needy. We remember those who struggle with their faith. We remember those whose weakness is um, physical, those whose weakness is in their brains, those whose weakness is emotional. There are many weaknesses, and we thank you that there is a great high priest who helps us in our weaknesses, for he himself was troubled in his temptations and is able to help us in every trial. Heavenly Father, we want to remember Chris Southwick, particularly this evening, um, having had news of, of his infection and his bronchitis and the, the potential that he won't be able to finish the work and his anxiety about that and being kept in isolation. Dear Heavenly Father, all things are possible for you. Surprise him with healing and enable him to finish the work this important work you have given him to do. Hear our prayers and keep us mindful of each other, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to sing again. This is time is Psalm 47. Uh, we're going to sing this unaccompanied. And Alistair will lead us to the tune Warrington. Hands up if you'd rather Mainzer. Sorry, there was a discussion earlier on. And Warrington won. All nations clap your hands and shout the joyful cries to God ring out.
going to sing again before um, Will comes to, to preach. Now, this is a song, Crawford's not sure if this is well known, so he's going to sing, or the band are going to sing through the first verse and then uh, to lead, and then we'll all sing together. So stay seated until he invites us to stand and sing. Experiences. I'm going to be referring to Numbers 18 tonight, so just keep that open in your, <laughs> your Bibles, um, because at the end of this chapter that we're going to look at, portions are given to the Levites and the priests. 
and it says according to the law. Well, that's the law, okay, from Numbers 18. It's the priests first and then the Levites, so keep that in mind. <clears throat> Since Sinclair gave us various tests this morning, um, I want to just kind of give you a little mental game to play. <clears throat> and it's kind of like two screens or two um, pages in your mind. One side, I want you to think about the best possible worship service you could ever be part of, okay? Just, I'm sure as many people as there are here tonight, there's that many different views as to what that worship service would look like, okay? But start filling that in in your own mind as to what elements would be part of that and so forth. On the other page, I want you to start filling in as we go through this passage, because this is a picture, a kind of a ideal picture of restoration and worship. There's this long list of priests, and we'll get to that, and then there's the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem culminates in this, this worship. And as you compare those two, you know, your ideal worship and what we have in this chapter, I would be willing to wager, if I were a betting man, that this passage would not fit your ideal worship service, <laughs> okay? Or if so, we need to talk afterwards. <laughs> this is an Old Testament picture of worship. And we need to get into that and see what's going on there. But it's a picture of restoration. If the book ended here, and I'll say more about that next week, it'd be kind of like fairy tale. Because we've seen them come back into the land. They rebuild the wall in, in rapid pace. A miracle almost. They repopulate the city. And then this chapter of this picture of glorious worship. Of all the people. It just takes your breath away. But then next week we'll see, well, there's problems. <laughs> We're not there yet. Okay, But if it ended here, you think, boy... We don't need the Messiah. Doesn't need to come. We're good. But all this chapter is saying, yeah, this is fulfillment. This is restoration. But there's more to come. More has to come. Jesus has to come. Our faithful high priest who intercedes for us, who worships because he's poured out his blood once for all. And we don't have to go through all of this. Turn with me in your pew Bibles or chair Bibles or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and it's on page 498, Nehemiah chapter 12. And I'm not going to read all of this. <clears throat> There's once again a very lengthy chunk. Um, the first 26 verses are pretty much nothing but names. <clears throat> As I said last week, Unless you're strange like me, reading a bunch of Hebrew names is not what um, you want to be here uh, and do this evening. I will say a few things about that, but I want to just look at a few verses uh, and then encourage you to follow along as we move through because we're going to spend most of our time from verse 27 through the end of the chapter, uh, which is the dedication of the wall and the worship that surrounds all of that. So here now, just a few verses out of... Uh, Nehemiah chapter 12, starting at verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived 
and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages, and then there's various villages that are listed here. For the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially. They purified the people, the gates, and the walls. And then Nehemiah tells us what he does, and he instructs two different groups to process around the city of Jerusalem. They meet at the temple and they conduct worship there as you go through the rest of this. To understand what's going on here, you have to understand the historical context first of all. In 538 BC, Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, issued a decree allowing the Jews to return. That doesn't mean they all just said, good, we're out of here, boom, and in mass go back. Dribs and drabs go. Bits and pieces, slowly, some go. Some just say, no, I'm not going to do this, I'm staying. And so there's three different groups we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. There's, first of all, a group that under the leadership of Zerubbabel go back, and with delays and opposition, they rebuild the temple. Then there's a good period of time, and a second group returns under the leadership of Ezra. And they're able, under his leadership, through really the preaching of the law of God, to reform the people of God who had been back there and begin to knit them into a community. Then, a few years later, a third group returns under the leadership of Nehemiah. And he, together with Ezra, see a covenant renewal of the people of God, again through the reading of the law of God, the people realize their sin, repent, and engage in a covenant renewal. In chapter 10 of Nehemiah, the people of God are again in union with their God, restored to fellowship with him. Again, here in, setback, in the third group, setbacks, opposition, delays, but they rebuild the walls, they repopulate the city. Okay, so it's just been this kind of culmination. And we get here now to chapter 12. And this is like the pinnacle of all that's been going on. This picture of restoration. Because you need to understand not just the historical context, but the theological context as well. The theological context goes all the way back to the time of Abram. And the covenant promises that God had made with him. God called him out of the land and he gives him these promises and says, okay, you're going to be a mighty nation. Has no children. So it's a promise of a seed that's to come so that that nation would happen. But ultimately it's a promise about the seed, the Messiah, that's going to come. Abraham hadn't done anything to deserve that. But God says, I'm going to give you the land. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. So you move on in time, time of Moses, God, in a sense, redeems his people out of Egypt in fulfillment of the promises made to Abram. And God gives more promises to his people, covenant promises, about rest, about inheritance, pictured in the entrance into the land of Palestine. 
but we know the history. <laughs> While Moses is receiving the law, they're building a calf. They go into the wilderness and just murmur and complain. They spend 40 years. They all die. They enter the land. We have the period of the judges. Then you enter the period of the kings with David. And God once again gives covenant promises to David. David says, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that. I'm going to build my house. I'm going to establish your kingdom. And there's one of your descendants that's going to come who will be my son. And he'll build my house. And so you have all those backgrounds, okay? And then you have the period of the monarchy where the people just go, I don't care. I'm just going to continue to sin, however. And God says through his prophets again and again, if you don't keep covenant, the curses are coming. Keep covenant, repent, or the curses are coming. But the people said, eh. And the prophets remind the people that those curses include being thrown out of the land. If you turn back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 63 and 64, God had already said, if you break covenant, you're going to be removed from the land. This was not something new when finally the Babylonians show up around Jerusalem to destroy it. God had said, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. So finally, because of their repeated willful unfaithfulness to the covenant obligations and in the face of Yahweh's unending covenant faithfulness again and again and again, he had been gracious to them. Finally, he said, no more. The curses are coming. And so they're sent into exile. However, as Yahweh is not only faithful to the curses of the covenant, thanks be to God. Yahweh not only does that, but he's faithful to the blessings of the covenant as well. The prophets had warned, sure, if you break the covenant, there's curses. But they've given us these breathtaking pictures, particularly in Isaiah, of restoration, of return, not just to the land but to the Lord himself. This is a people whose heart had been so far away from him. But God says, I'm going to bring you back to me one day. I'm going to restore you. Not to the land as an end in itself, but he brings them back so that they see he is indeed faithful to the covenant. So that they would worship him because of his faithfulness. And really, in a certain sense, the whole book of Nehemiah is a picture of God's faithfulness and a call to worship him because of his faithfulness. And that's what we see in this chapter. It's a demonstration that Yahweh keeps covenant no matter what. He's always faithful to that. And here in Nehemiah 12, we see the response of God's people to the faithfulness of their God. They are at this point just overwhelmed with what he's done. And it just erupts out into this worship. And as we look through this chapter, first of all, there's the list of registers of the priests and the Levites in verses 1 to 26. And then the second half of the chapter, verses 27 to 47, 
is the dedication of the wall. <clears throat> so we'll look at those two in unequal portions. So the first one, the first uh, 26 verses, we'll go through relatively quickly so that we can spend more time on the dedication of the wall, which is verses 27 to 47. But we need to understand why in the world is this yet another list in Nehemiah, of these Hebrew names, many of which are repeated in these lists here in chapter 12. So it's not just, you know, a list of different people. There's some names given, and then some other names, and then, then some other names are repeated, and then some other names are repeated. It's like, why is this here? What's going on? So there's just three things we need to look at quickly to understand why this is here. First of all, this concerns the priests and the Levites. Okay, These are priests and Levite names, their families. And what this does is it establishes the validity of the priests to conduct worship. Now, see, we're not, you're not concerned about my heritage. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't let a weird American up here in this pulpit. <laughs> but for Jews in the Old Testament, not just anybody could be a priest. And so this is establishing that we have the right priests so that worship can be conducted properly, that's acceptable to God. Yeah, just to kind of give a little bit away, it's about atonement for sin. Not just anybody could pull that off. They had to be the proper people to do that. And these lists of names of priests are to say, we got the right folks here. Okay? We don't have to go into all of them, but that's what's happening here. These people were to make atonement for sin. And so we had to be sure of that's who we have here. Secondly, it establishes the historical link between the first generation that had returned under Zerubbabel and now the generation that's alive in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's a period of over 90 years. So maybe some of the priests had kind of gone astray or whatever and they have to make sure, no, we've got the right people, the right ones have come back, we've got the right ones here. So, two reasons. Thirdly, many of the names are repeated. And Nehemiah 1, or 12, 1 to 26. And the list that's found here is almost identical to the one that's in Nehemiah 10. The people who signed the covenant under Ezra and Nehemiah's leadership. So we have again this covenant community. The leaders of that, the religious leaders are spelled out here clearly. So that we understand that the worship that's going to follow is going to be proper. Okay? If you look at an outline of these first verses, first 26 verses, it's the priestly households, verses 1 to 7. Then the Levites are mentioned in verses 8 and 9. Then the high priests. Why are the high priests? Because only the high priests could go into the Holy of Holy and atone for sin. You better have the right high priest. Then the heads of the priestly families in verses 12 to 21, and the heads of the Levitical families in verses 22 to 26. So it's spelling all these people out by name. It's not just, we're good. Let's do this. No, there's this very Old Testament Hebrew way of saying, we can now worship God. 
because we have priests. This is so foreign to our way of thinking. Thanks be to God. This side of Calvary and Pentecost, we're all priests before the Lord. We can all pray without having to have some priest. And we should be thankful for that. And then you have the foundation for worship. These lists provide the Old Testament foundation for worship. The worship that's about to unfold in the latter part of this chapter. Taken as a whole, Nehemiah 12 is evidence for and a description of the response of God's people to the covenant faithfulness of their God. God has done his bit and now here we see the people just responding to him. In joy and worship. So now we'll look at the dedication of the wall. There's first of all the preparation for, the, for this whole ceremony that's to follow. And we find that in verses 27 to 30. Then there's these twin groups that go around the city. We'll talk more about that in verses 31 to 43. And then finally there's provision for ongoing worship. It's not just this wonderful, wow, worship. But then there's provision that this keeps going. Okay, and we'll see why that is. Before we move to the description of the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem, we need to know know more about, or note that in chapter 12, the language of the text is again Nehemiah speaking. Okay, He last spoke back in chapter 7, verse 5. And there's been reports about what's been going on. But here now Nehemiah is speaking. He's saying, I led the people up on the wall. I was following this one group. He's intimately involved in what's going on here. And we hear his voice speaking. But we see the focus here is about the dedication of the wall. And the word for dedication, you may have heard of the Jewish um, holiday, Hanukkah. That's what dedication is. So they're having this dedication. And the word that's used here is used of dedicating particularly religious buildings. But here it's the whole city, okay? The walls that are surrounding the city. And it was always, always accompanied with joy. This was not something you just kind of, I got to do this. And this is going to, we just get through this and we'll move on. No, this is a time of saying, God's given us this. Whether it's the temple in Solomon's time was a dedication of immense joy. When they rebuilt the temple in Ezra's day, there was joy, but then there was also people that were weeping. Why? Because they said, oh, this is just, it's not enough. It's not like the other temple. But there was joy there. And so here at this dedication, if you know what this word means, it should start to awaken you, this sense of, this is going to be good. <laughs> the people are going to be happy. They're going to be glad at what's happening here. Then in verse 27, we see the leaders. They seek out the, the Levites from all of their places. We've already seen last time in chapter 11, some of the Levites had been moved back into Jerusalem, but the rest were spread across the land. Well, what this is saying is... This is an all-hands-on-deck affair. The Levites were the assistants to the priests, and they were all going to be needed. Okay, This is not going to be just a few guys doing a few things, and then that's it. 
This is an engagement of the whole temple personnel. All the Levites are brought back in. And the list here includes where they were living. There's named villages where the singers were. Can you imagine going past that town? You know, that's where all the singers of the temple lived. What that must have been like at night. <laughs> but the point here is that all of the Levites are called to help to get ready for and prepare this act of worship. What were they doing? Mundane things. Getting wood so you can burn it on the altar. Animals to sacrifice. All the utensils had to be brought out and gotten ready. There was a lot to go in. It wasn't just people showing up and going, okay, now let's have a worship service. The Levites here here called in. The next, again in verse 27, we see the nature of this worship. And there's various elements to this worship. The first is that it's a dedication celebrated with gladness. This word means joy, happiness, exuberance, spontaneous and vocal expressions of joy. This isn't, you can't tell, but I'm happy. (laughs) This is, I'm going to explode happiness. Okay? It involved singing praise. It involved eating and drinking at a festival or a feast. The playing of numerous musical instruments. Dancing, clapping hands. This is the polar opposite of mourning and gloom. This is what restoration is all about. Gladness. And occasions for such meetings are the, or occasions of this joy is meeting of a loved one. Receiving good news, protection, release from prison. These are not minor things. In Israel, joy had a pronounced religious significance. As part of the religious calendar, it was grounded in the very activity of God. He's the one that causes this. And so in the Feast of Tabernacles, in the Feast of Weeks, in the fellowship offerings, even with tithes, Joy was to be expressed in the worship of God's people. This wasn't just, okay, we got to do this, it's Sunday, so ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. No, this is sitting back and saying, God has provided, and we're responding. And how do we do that? We respond with gladness. You can think of the Psalter. It's just full of calls to rejoice, to be joyful, to be glad. The prophet Jeremiah, interestingly, prophesying at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. He lived in Jerusalem. He saw women eating their own children because they were starving to death. But he saw a day coming. I want to read for you in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 18 and following. What Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob And have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound. And the place shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving. And the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them. And they shall not be few. And I will make them honored. And they shall not be small. 
That's what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 12. It's a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. This eruption of worship and gladness that he's talking about here. So the first aspect of this worship is gladness. Secondly, it's thanksgiving. Again in verse 27. While thanks is occasionally for general things, generally speaking, thanks in the Old Testament is thanks in response to what Yahweh had done. His grace, his covenant faithfulness. How else do you react? You don't say, well, I'm going to earn that now after the fact. You just respond by expressing thanks. There's also generally songs of thanksgiving that accompanied this thanks. So this was not just thank you, a nice little polite little note, a thank you note. It was expressed in songs of thanksgiving. It was a corporate activity, not an individualistic thing. Mathaniah and the fellow I talked about last week, Bukiah, were charged with leading the singing of God's people and the thanksgiving. What a job. All you got to do is thank the Lord for what he's done. That's what these guys were called to do. Interestingly, however, the word choir, which occurs in ESV and in the NIV, does not occur in the text itself in verses 31, 38, and 40. Rather, it's the plural form of the word give thanks. So these are groups whose task is to give thanks. Figures they're a choir, in a sense, but it's not called that. These are people who give thanks to the Lord. So we have gladness, we have thanksgiving. Thirdly, we have singing. And again, while there's references in the Old Testament to love songs and other types of secular singing, in the Old Testament, the primary use of this term has to do with sung praise of Yahweh. You think of the song of Moses in Exodus 15. The people have just come through the Red Sea. And Moses goes, we got to sing. And so you have in Exodus 14 the account historical narrative. And then in chapter 15, it's poetry. It's sung. And Moses leads the people of God, calls them to worship. That's what the singing is all about. It goes back to the time of David when he appointed Levitical singers to raise sounds of joy in the worship of Yahweh in First Chronicles 15, verse 16. And then finally we see the nature of this worship. It's accompanied by musical instruments. There's cymbals, there's harps, there's lyres. These are not quiet instruments. <laughs> These are not little, you know, tiny things. Cymbals may be bells, Or hand symbols, they're not the big crashing things that we think of. But there's a lot of noise here. Okay? So it's singers, it's thanksgiving, it's gladness, it's musical instruments to accompany all of this. This is the worship of the people of God in response to its faithfulness. But it's not just that. It's not just, oh, let's let's do all these cool things so that we can feel good. As you look at verse 30, there's another aspect to this worship that is essential. 
And that is purification. It means the cause to be clean, morally, ritually, not in a physical sense. In the Old Testament, there's a whole range of things that are either clean or unclean. And there's various levels of cleanness or uncleanness. And there's an associated whole panoply of processes by which you can make the unclean clean. Can't go into all of those. But the most serious level of uncleanness is that which is caused by willful sin against God. It meant not only that they were to be excluded from taking part in worship, but also it demanded the penalty for sin. Either that person's death or the sacrificial death of an appropriate substitute, a bull or a lamb. The chief passage dealing with man's need for purification from sin is the description of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. The goal of that was to cleanse the people, atone for their sins. And it required the death of a substitute. Hopefully you're beginning to think New Testament and what's going on there. This is Old Testament. It's anticipation of that that is yet to come. Prophet Jeremiah again foretells the restoration of the people of God in Jeremiah 33, verses 7 to 9. The restoration is closely connected with Yahweh cleansing and purifying his people from their sin and guilt. There in Jeremiah, the outcome of that purification is that the city of Jerusalem will be a joy and that the nations will hear of the good that Yahweh does for his people. That's what's going to happen here in this chapter. It's joy because they've been purified. And people from afar hear it. So it's a literal fulfillment of what Jeremiah is saying in Jeremiah 33. Nehemiah 12, we see the process of purification. And it begins with the priests and Levites, rightly. Since they are the ones charged with carrying out the ministry of cleansing the holy things and making sure that they remain clean and cleansing the people themselves. But it goes on in verse 30. They purify the people. So once all the priests and the Levites had cleansed themselves, one another, they in turn purify all of the people. All of the people. You have to let the scope of this just stagger your imagination. They had to do this so that all of the people could participate in this worship. This was not merely about the priests and the Levites. It was about the restored people of God coming before their God in thankful worship. But for that to take place, atonement had to be made. Blood had to be shed for the purification of their sin. Verse 30 continues, and the gates and the wall of Jerusalem was purified. So finally, the priests and Levites go about purifying the gates and the walls. What we have here, in effect, is the purification of the entire city of Jerusalem, making it a holy city. Once everyone and everything had been purified, the worship could finally begin. Thanks be to God, we don't have to do that. 
You just waltzed in here tonight, probably unprepared. (laughs) You certainly weren't sprinkled with blood. But these people knew that to worship God, an animal has to die. Because that's what I deserve. And so all of that had to take place. And when you picture this, don't think of some hygienic praise service. Designed to make everybody feel good. Focus on warm fuzzies. This is different. Way different. The priests and the people would have at least been sprinkled, if not covered in blood. That was what was required. When Hebrew says without the shedding of blood there's no remission, it means shedding of blood. And for the whole people to be purified, not just the priests and the Levites, but the whole people, think of all the animals that had to have been slaughtered. Think of the consciousness of God's people saying, we deserve to die because of our sins and the sins of our fathers. But thanks be to God, that sacrifice atones for our sins because it points to one who's yet to come. So there's rivers of blood. The walls, the gates are sprinkled with blood. This is not a nice Sunday evening service at St. Peter's. Would it be offensive to most of us? But it's a reminder of sin, a reminder of what God in His grace does in saving us from that sin. And so we need to think of these animals and not miss the reality of what's going on here. <clears throat> so now the preparation is made. Verses 31 to 43, we see two processions. There's leaders, Nehemiah is speaking, who is the one who has organized the event. And he brings up the leaders on one wall and then sends others on the other side. You have to picture the city of Jerusalem. It's kind of like a little wedge. At the south part, it's very, very narrow. It probably was not even 100 yards wide. Okay, So don't think of Edinburgh and the big castle and the nice massive wall that goes around there. Think of this wee little tiny city that's very narrow at the southern part. And as it goes up the hill towards the temple, it starts to branch out and then encompasses the temple. And what Nehemiah describes here is, first of all, there's different people that are involved, different accompaniments and so forth. But it's two processions that go around the city wall. Okay, And again, they could just look over and right there's the other group. It's not like they're, they can't see each other because they're so far away. You have to put yourself in the reality of this whole situation. And when you say, when it says they go up on the wall, don't think garden wall like here in Scotland. You know, a nice little thin thing. Just refer you to the, the passages in verse, verses um, well, 41, 38, 39, where you see the path of these and there's indications. And so if you had been in the city at that time, you knew where they're going as they go around. Okay, The first group, there's priests in it. There's accompaniment of trumpets, blasting and singers. And Ezra, the scribe, the one who has read the law, is at the head of that group. There's the other group that goes on the western side and goes up and around. And again, there's stations along that that are given in the text. 
so that people might know. Nehemiah is at the end of that group, who also have accompaniment of trumpets and singers. And so as they go, they walk around the walls, and where do they end up? They start off at the southern part of the city, and as they walk up the hill, the Ophel, the city of David, at the top of that hill is where the temple is. And so you just imagine the scene. These two groups singing thanksgivings to God after the whole city has been purified. And they get to the temple. And what do they do there? That was really good. Now we'll go home. No. We're told there that they made many sacrifices, great sacrifices. The worship of God in the Old Testament demanded sacrifice. And so we see them engaging in that as they go around. The words choir doesn't appear. These are people who are thanking the Lord for his covenant faithfulness and all that he has done. The two groups meet at the house of God. You need to feel the excitement of this. These people have been waiting for this day for a long time. And now it's there. The whole people of God engaged in worship. And look at the the character of this worship. First of all, there's sacrifices. It's the same word that's used earlier. They offered great sacrifices. And for us, this side of the cross, this emphasis on purification and sacrifice, that it requires a bit strange and might be difficult to understand. But for Old Test- the Old Testament, you could not worship without sacrifice. We can't worship without sacrifice. Thanks be to God, I don't have to get up here and slaughter an animal in front of you and sprinkle you all with its blood. But in the Old Testament, that had to happen. It wasn't the people just going, oh, now we can worship God, let's go. No. Animals had to die. Blood had to be shed. A substitute had to take the place of the people to pay for their sins. There is praise here, as we've seen, and we'll see again. But this is not what we think of as a praise service. The approach of Yahweh in worship required blood sacrifice to atone for sin. But thanks be to God, the worship service doesn't stop there with the sacrifice. We're told in verse 43, and they rejoice. We're back to the gladness and the joy mentioned in verse 27. Gone is the weeping of the book of Lamentations. Written after the destruction of Jerusalem, the people weep on their way to exile. Not just because they've lost everything, but because they fear we've been cut off from a covenant relationship with our God. That's gone. They're back. They're at the temple. They're worshiping. They rejoice. And it's interesting that it's not just something they've worked up, some emotional thing, because we're told in the text that God made them glad. And again, another thing that's maybe normal for us, we're told in the text that women and children rejoiced. Well, duh. But again, we're in the Old Testament. Old Old Testament worship was a male thing. Priests did it, male priests. 
And here explicitly, women and children are part of this covenant people of God, restored to worship. Do you feel the anticipation to post-Pentecost, what's happening here? And then we're told that the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This wasn't, oh, we got to be really quiet here in case these people that want to destroy us come. No, they're just exploding in joy because of what God has done. Imagine being there. Think of this sound. But you have to ask, why? Why all the joy? Why all the loudness of that joy? This thunderous expression of joy is in response to what Yahweh had done. His unending covenant faithfulness and grace toward these people. They simply were overwhelmed by the enormity of it. And they could not restrain themselves. God has taken us back. We're in fellowship with him again. Does that do anything to your mind, your heart? We were enemies. But through the death of Christ, we have access. And that's what this is pointing us to. But it's not just an act of worship, and it ends there, verses 44 to 47, and we're just not going to have time to look at all of those. It's preparation for ongoing. This is not a one-off thing. It's not like, wow, wasn't that great, that worship service we had, and all that blood, and that was just wonderful, wasn't it? No. Then we're told here that all the people provided for all of the temple personnel so that the worship could keep going. They wanted to continue in fellowship with God. They couldn't do that on their own and just decide, I'm going to go to church tonight, and that's it. No, you had to have priests. The priests had to be fed. The priests had to have supplies. They had to have animals, wood, so forth. And the people here are saying, we've covenanted to not neglect the house of God. Chapter 10, verse 39. And here they're saying, we're going to carry through with that so that our relationship with God can continue. But as we think of this whole chapter, and there's a lot more we could say about it, and what's going on here at the end of the chapter and this provision of ongoing worship. But there's a kind of an already, but not yet. They're restored, but the sacrifices have to continue. There hasn't been a sacrifice yet that's going to stop all of this. There still need to be priests. Those priests and Levites still need to be fed. They still need to be provided with animals to sacrifice. This whole scene, as mind-blowing as it is, and the joy that's there, just shouts at us, there's got to be more. There's got to be a better priest. There's got to be a better sacrifice to come. And beloved, that's what we enjoy these people pulled out all the stops. And when I think about myself, how much does what Christ has done for me overwhelm me? And want me to just sing thanksgiving nonstop. That's the point of this passage. Not that we divide ourselves up and, okay, this half I want you to gather at the back, and this half gather at the back, and we're going to process up here to the front and then have a sing a hymn. That's not the point of this passage. The point is God is faithful. How do you respond to that? 
God keeps covenant. How do you know? Because Jesus is risen from the dead. It's proof positive. God has sent his son. He's taken our place. He's risen from the dead. And where is he now? He's our faithful high priest. Not trying to sacrifice some other animal to spread the blood around. He's taken his own blood before his father and poured it out and said, it's done. Thanks be to God. We can worship here now. In this hour. In our whole lives. Because of what Christ has already done. The people in Nehemiah. They look forward to this time. When the sacrifices would stop. When the high priest would finally come. And we need to get our hearts around that. So that it changes us. So that it makes us thankful to God for our salvation. That it causes us to rejoice. Not in the sense of all our problems are now magically gone away. But because we have a faithful high priest. Who says come to the throne of grace. And find grace in your time of need. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, your grace is overwhelming. We pray, dear Lord, that that grace would lay hold of us, transform us, give us songs of thanksgiving for the wonder of what you've done in Christ for us, that we don't have to worry about shedding blood and all the rest. You've done it all. You've paid the price. You've lived the perfect life. May we respond with worship and thanksgiving. Not just today, on the Lord's day, but may our lives be hymns of thanksgiving to you, our great God and high priest. And um, also in our response, we're going to stand to sing together the song, Salvation Belongs to Our God.
And may grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit be your portion tonight and always. Amen.